Hey everybody, welcome to episode 59 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back, welcome aboard. Before we get to today's show, I want to make an announcement. Previous guest, Shantae Salabert, has released the book that she has been threatening to release for the last couple of years. You may recall her from episode 27 or the solo backpacking roundtable episode number 31. If you are in the Southern California area, she is holding events through January and you can also pick up her book, Hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, Southern California, online through Mountaineers Books on Amazon and other places that books can be acquired. Or if you go to our website, gogetoutside.com slash podcast and look for episode 27 with Shantae, there you will find a link that links directly to her website and all of the places where you can get her book. On to today's show, we have Matt Podolsky. He is a filmmaker, biologist, conservationist, podcaster, and co-founder of Wild Lens, a nonprofit production company. He and I have been trying to make this particular episode happen for quite some time. Returning listeners may know that I prefer to record these in person as often as possible, but despite our best efforts, we could not make that happen. So we compromised and recorded this episode through Skype. And we ended up with a damn good episode, despite the physical distance between us. So join us now as we talk with Matt Podolsky about producing documentaries, The California Condor, Lead Bullets, Endangered Sea Mammals, Our Place in the Ecosystem of the Earth, and the psychological and emotional impact of using condors to find human remains. My name is Matt Podolsky. I'm a a filmmaker, biologist, conservationist. I'm one of the co-founders of Wild Lens, which is a nonprofit media production company that I help run that summarizes it, I guess, in the most concise way possible. All right. (laughs) So you are located in Boise, correct? In Boise, Idaho? I am. You bet. So are you a native or did you end up there some other way? I'm not. I've been living in Boise for about nine years now. I ended up moving to Boise actually through my work as a biologist, um, working with California condors. So this was sort of my, my first career, you know, as a field biologist. I spent two years working with the wild population of California condors down in uh, northern Arizona and southern Utah. That program is managed by the Peregrine Fund, which is a nonprofit conservation organization that's based here in Boise, Idaho. And while I was working down there, I got offered a position working uh, with the captive breeding program for California condors. And they actually have the largest captive breeding program for condors anywhere in the world here in Boise. That's how I ended up here in Boise, Idaho. And I spent two years um, working with the, the captive flock of California condors here in Idaho before branching out and starting my own nonprofit. Yeah, so one thing I find really interesting is that you are a biologist, a conservationist, and a filmmaker. So you started, I'm sure, pursuing one of those and then kind of evolved into the others. So were you originally interested in biology and then everything branched out from there? Or did some other path bring you there? For a long time, I've had an interest in both, right? In both 
filmmaking and sort of conservation biology and, and the environment generally. And so I went to school, I got my undergraduate degree at Ithaca College in upstate New York, and I did a, a dual major there. So I actually did a cinema and photography major, but then I also did an environmental science major. When I graduated, essentially the jobs that I was finding were, you know, field biology positions, uh, mostly field ornithology. So I was, you know, my, my sort of biology background is focused on uh, bird research. And so I worked a handful of jobs, you know, sort of straight out of college, working on these sort of research and conservation projects connected to a variety of different bird species and then ultimately landed this job in northern Arizona working with California condors as a biologist and that was sort of where sort of the gears started turning regarding my background in filmmaking right and the reason why was just that there was I was seeing this really interesting story unfold in front of me the role that I was playing in that issue the issue that was impacting the condors that I was working with as a biologist like was very important but I wanted to do more you know like I saw this this issue and I saw what was going on and the way the crew was operating and how they were dealing with uh, this really tricky conservation issue surrounding reintroducing California condors into this environment I knew that like a there's a really interesting story here and B like I could take this you know using this format of a documentary style video to uh, show more people what's going on. I know you mentioned in an email that you were a pretty active outdoors kid. And so is that where you started to see these issues arising in personal experiences as a kid? Or did you start to find out from, say, magazines or or news programs? What brought you to realize that there were these issues and that you wanted to do something about them? If I could really trace that back to its origins, you know, I'm going to go, you know, pretty far back here. Do you want to go back to the dawn of time? <laughs> that is acceptable. No, I, I so I have this childhood memory that, that is always stuck with me. And, and I think I was in kindergarten, so I was probably six years old. My parents took me to, to see an IMAX film, and I grew up in the Boston area. And so the Boston Museum of Science has actually the first IMAX theater ever built in the world. So it's very famous. This was a cool thing for us to do, you know, as a family. Uh, we'd go see these educational sort of IMAX films. And my parents took me to see an IMAX film that was about the deterioration of the ozone layer. I feel like I know which time period this must be based yeah, on that subject matter. Right, exactly. <laughs> so this is early 90s, right? right? It had such an impression on me. And like, I really, you know, clearly I was not able to sort of understand the full scope of like what was being discussed right i mean the whole issue with the ozone layer is it's quite complex especially for a six-year-old to try to comprehend right i mean this idea that there's this whole this you know layer of the atmosphere that is being deteriorated by certain chemicals that like humans are putting into the atmosphere i mean i i didn't grasp all of it you know what i took in was this sense of you know that this was a dire problem and that it was caused by people and that people were responsible for fixing it. And it also scared the shit out of me. I mean, I remember for probably weeks after that, when it would be time to go to bed, like I remember thinking like something catastrophic might happen like while I'm sleeping. <laughs> right, something's, yeah, something's gonna <laughs> fall through the ozone hole and destroy your home. <laughs> so, you know, whatever this, and I mean, I should I should, I should, should really like go back and uh, find this, this IMAX program because it'd probably be very interesting to like watch it again now but you know it's just like the sense of like the direness of the issue was definitely conveyed and like stuck in my mind almost certainly like that sort of led to the mindset 
that I have now and the importance that I place on conservation. It's actually really cool that you can link it back. Like I'm sure there were plenty of other events that that lent to it later, but it's cool that you can link it back to something so particular and at such a young age. Do you remember who made that IMAX video or the name of it or any of that? No, I know nothing about it. And yeah, now I need to do some research and figure out like what some of the details, because no, to be honest, I haven't I haven't really looked into it at all since that time when when I saw it. You know, I, I feel like it's one of those things where if the filmmakers heard that that's partly what helped inspire you into taking the life path that you did, they would feel pretty honored about that. I, I would imagine. So. Right. Right. <laughs> all right. So six years old, you're in kindergarten. Suddenly, the weight of the world is upon your mere <laughs> tiny shoulders. You know that the world is a mess already and you have to fix it where do you go from there besides first grade right i mean i I definitely grew up in in you know in a family where we spent a lot of time outdoors and we went on backpacking trips when i was a kid i think i was maybe 12 when we went on our first backpacking trip in um in the white mountains in new hampshire so i spent a lot of time you know sort of up in the mountains in northern new england as i was growing up i mean that's really where the experience of like getting outside and you know the benefits of being in that outdoor environment, I mean, it definitely came from from that, you know, from going on camping trips. Pretty much every vacation we took was, you know, had some outdoor component, a lot of camping, a lot of backpacking. That's definitely like sort of the next stage that you layer onto that, right? Of like, there's this base level understanding of like the role that, that we play in our environment and how it's not always positive and that feeling of like something dire on the horizon, right? Which I absolutely feel to this day, right? And and I'm sure most people, it's hard to it's hard to work in conservation and not feel that, right? I can't imagine the fear you felt at six years old learning about the ozone layer has decreased. <laughs> imagine it has only increased as you've gotten older and learned about more and more issues that should concern you. I know, right? And I mean, it's 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 kind of interesting that that was the issue that that you know is the seed of this, at least in my memory. And of course, that's an issue that we were able to solve. You know, I mean, that's a, a huge success story for humanity. But yeah, unfortunately, the issues we deal with now are a lot more difficult to solve. So yeah, that weight has certainly not decreased. You're right. If anything, the more I learn, the, that that weight uh, increases as I move forward. But I mean, I think connected to that and, and also parallel to that, right, is like the importance of spending time in the outdoors, right? For me, and, and I'm sure for a lot of other people that, that work in this space, that's how you get relief from that right is by going out into the outdoors and it's experiencing that and and you know it leads to this recognition of like okay like there's a lot of problems in the world but it's still possible to get out and you know be in these spectacular natural areas i mean really no matter where you are there's always you know you can always find a place to escape in the outdoors you had the crap scared out of you you decided at some point to study biology so you moved forward with that and you started to work as a biologist at what point did you realize the things i'm working on could really be serviced by creating a documentary about this was scavenger hunt the first of those or was there something prior to that scavenger hunt was the first of those yeah that was um really where where it all began and yeah it was while i was working as a a california condor field biologist in arizona in Utah. It was this issue that I was dealing with on a daily basis, you know, as a biologist and as someone responsible for managing this population of endangered California condors that inspired me to say, like, you know, I think the benefit I could have as sort of a storyteller or a filmmaker is potentially greater than the role I'm playing as a biologist. You know, the issue that is 
impacting California condors in Arizona and Utah, but also in the, you know, every other release population in California and in northern Baja down in Mexico is the same, which is this issue of lead poisoning from spent ammunition. And so literally every task that we were doing as condor field biologists was connected to this single issue. Management was the focus. I mean, yes, we were collecting data that's, you know, used in research, but the singular focus was on managing this population and making sure that these animals remain healthy and safe because obviously the California condor is still a critically endangered species. And so all these animals, you know, wear radio transmitters and, you know, we track them wherever they go, essentially. Literally the only reason that we had to do that, the only thing that's killing these animals, at least once they reach a certain age, right? Because there is this process of introducing them to their new wild habitat because most of these birds are animals that are raised in a captive setting. Obviously, you know, and and they're raised in a captive setting, but with as little sort of human interaction as possible so that when they're released, you know, obviously you release an animal like a condor, you don't want them to sort of see humans as a potential food source and fly directly to the nearest population center. So that's going to be a problem for that animal. So there is this process, right, of like introducing these captive raised animals into the wild flock, which sometimes it takes a couple of months, sometimes it takes up to a year before they really get integrated and they start following this wild flock around and they learn how to sort of free forage on their own. But once that happens, literally nothing kills them except lead poisoning. So, I mean, this would be a self-sustaining population that this whole crew of biologists could just walk away from and feel very confident that they would, you know, their range would continue to expand. Eventually, the population would become 100% wild, self-sustaining population if it were not for this one issue. Um, and so, as, as you might imagine, like when this is, you know, every single task you do on a daily basis is connected to this one issue that in a certain sense seems very simple and solvable. But then when you delve into sort of the the motivations and the politics behind why it's so difficult to resolve this one issue, then things start to get interesting. That was sort of my realization of like, okay, well, if I could just inform more people about what's going on here, that would solve everything. And for anyone listening who's not quite clear still on what Scavenger Hunt is, it is a documentary you put together particularly about this topic of California condors dying from lead poisoning. And people listening may say, so wait, are people shooting the condors? No, they are eating the remains of animals that have been shot with lead bullets. And therefore... That has leached into their blood system, and when they eat them, it ends up in the condor blood system. You have two issues to deal with when you're making that documentary. You have all the normal concerns of making a documentary, which is all the regular difficulties that come around with filmmaking. But then you also have a mission, which is to get this information out and change the way that people are, are interacting with the wildlife. So can you tell us a little bit about the challenges of dealing with both of those things during and after making this film? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, my goal right from the beginning in putting this film together was to produce produce a film that a hunter could watch and walk away from thinking like, oh, maybe I should change the type of ammunition that I use. Because as you explained, I mean, this is not an issue of, you know, people going out and actively intentionally killing condors. This is unintentional. And most people and probably have no idea that this is a exactly. side effect of their actions. Exactly. So it's it's absolutely, you know, a, a lack of information. You're right. I mean, the, I think the vast majority 
of hunters have no awareness that the fragments of lead that are left in the gut pile that they leave behind in the field after they process, you know, the deer or the elk that they shoot um, contains all these lead fragments and it's poisoning not just California condors, but it's poisoning any scavenger that happens across this gut pile and, and consumes it. You know, that's one of the interesting things that, that we've seen. It was sort of, you know, condors are sort of seen as sort of the canary in the coal mine for this lead poisoning issue because since it's been learned that this is essentially the only issue that is preventing these condor populations from uh, becoming self-sustaining and surviving without constant human intervention. There have been all this research on all these other species of scavengers indicating that they have elevated blood lead levels, you know, during these times of year when hunting is going on within their environment. But yes, the, the goal with my film was absolutely to produce something that like a hunter would watch and they would walk away from it thinking like, oh wow, I should change the type of ammunition I use. Because that's one of the cool things about this issue is there are alternatives to lead-based ammunition that are readily available, and at this point available for virtually every caliber of gun that you might use to hunt. This really wasn't a film for a general audience, you know? I mean, often you try to produce something that like, oh, maybe like, you know, it's, it's targeted to a few specific groups of people, but it's also something that you want, like, a much more general, wider audience to see. I was definitely trying to play that balancing act, right? I mean, but it was, it was more important for me to get trust and buy-in from the hunting community. That being said, I think it, because I'm not a hunter and I've, I've watched the film, and I think one of the nice things about this type of story is it makes you stop and think, well, what ways am I potentially impacting things without being aware of it? And should I maybe look into that? Or maybe I have people in my life who also could benefit from this knowledge because perhaps maybe they do hunt. And so I do think there's even more crossover appeal Sorry to interrupt you. Continue with what you were saying. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And I mean, starting the conversation is, I think, the most important piece here, right? As with many, many conservation issues, especially when, you know, conservation issues become sort of politically polarized, which has absolutely happened with this lead ammunition issue, the effective way to get through to people is to have that face-to-face -face communication with them. So yes, absolutely. I mean, even if you're not a hunter, I mean, we've gotten a lot of that, that type of feedback of like, well, I'm not a hunter, but I know some people that are hunters and like this film inspired me to like start that conversation. These people that I know about what type of ammunition they use, you know, and it's much more effective like coming from somebody, somebody that they know and, and trust, you know, like, hey, maybe you should think about switching to non-lead ammunition because did you know that you're unintentionally killing all these scavenging species when you use a lead core bullet? So that's absolutely part of it, right? But I mean, there were certain decisions that were made creatively when we were putting the film together where I was thinking a lot about that target audience. So a lot of the feedback that we got from non-hunters when we were screening the film was like, oh, it's really gruesome. And, and I really didn't want to see the kill shot. I really didn't want to see that deer die. You know, that was an important decision for us is to include that shot in the film where you see this deer being shot, being taken down, and then you see it being processed and you see the gut pile being removed. You know, that's the type of thing where like, okay, you know, maybe that's difficult for some environmentalists to watch, but the hunters who saw the film really respected the fact that we included that because for them, that's, that's a very important part of the process. I mean, I don't know, you know, uh, it's, to be honest, I'm not sure, like, if, if I would do it the same way, like, you know, now looking back in retrospect with, 
you know, having a lot more experience as, as a filmmaker and a storyteller, you know, I don't know, right? Uh, at the time, that was that was the thinking, was like, we need to include this stuff because, you know, this is a film for hunters. I mean, it's also the reality. Right, and Hiding the I reality mean, that's a part help. of it too. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Is that, that is a part of it. It is absolutely a reality, and this is the way it, it works, and it's maybe hard for some people to see. Yeah, I'm not going to hide the reality of the situation from you. Absolutely. So how long has it been since you completed Scavenger Hunt and released it? And what has the impact been since its release? We did our festival run for the film in 2012. And then we did our our release at the beginning of 2013 for like DVD and VOD, etc. As I'm sure you're aware, like, you know, trying to sort of like track the impact of one specific piece of content on a, a large complex issue like this is is very difficult. Right. Um, I'd like to think that I'd like to think that that our film played a significant role in this conversation about sort of how do we best approach this issue, you know, one of the sort of central themes in the film is like we wanted to show people like undeniably this is an this is the problem this is what's killing condors and other scavengers is lead poisoning from spent ammunition and there's no argument there within the scientific community but we did show that there is argument about what the best way the best approach to solve that issue is and one of the interesting things that you know, I was sort of there to observe was these two different approaches that are being taken. In Arizona, the Fish and Game Agency set up this voluntary non-lead ammunition program where they they give free non-lead ammunition to all of the hunters who draw a tag within this certain region where it's known that the condors go and forage on these gut piles. And then in California, there was a ban placed on the use of lead-based ammunition for hunting within the range of the condor initially, and now that ban has been extended statewide. So as of 2019, the ban will go into full effect in 2019, and it will be illegal to hunt with non-lead ammunition anywhere in the state of California. The problem lies in enforcement and or participation. It's very, very difficult to sort of know and to track what kind of ammunition hunters are actually using because even these lead core bullets, almost all of them, have a, a copper sheath. Even if you had some extensive sort of law enforcement you know, agency, like if you had more game wardens than they have currently in California, and there actually were, you know, sort of a a significant number of people sort of going from hunting camp to hunting camp all across the state, checking in on what type of ammunition is being using, it'd be impossible to just know, to look at a bullet and know what's on the inside of it. Enforcement is extraordinarily difficult in this issue. Um, and one of the neat things about the voluntary program is because there's no there's no regulation tied to it, it's not illegal to use the lead-based ammunition, they can get fairly accurate survey data on usage of the lead-based ammo versus non-lead. And what they've seen is that they've gotten, they're consistently getting between 80 and 90% participation in Northern Arizona with this voluntary program. Now, of course, they're giving free ammunition to hunters. Which is a good solution because as you're pointing out, more or less, it has to be more attractive to use mm-hmm. the non-lead-based ammunition than the lead-based for change to occur. Exactly. 
Exactly. And it's sort of an example of like these two different approaches. And and I mean, the reality is in order to ultimately solve the problem, you need both. You need the carrot and the stick. California chose the stick only and Arizona chose the carrot only, right? (laughs) So if they combine Um, forces. (laughs) mm -hmm, I know. And realistically, like in California now, there is a huge amount of effort being put into education and outreach for hunters specifically connected to this issue with lead-based ammunition. And so it would be unfair for me to say that like, oh, California is banning it and then that's it. And they're not thinking about going out and doing outreach with the hunting community because that's not true now. But the problem is that when the initial ban within the range of the condor was passed in 2008, there was no education and outreach done leading up to that ban. And so what that did is, you know, now the folks who are going in and doing outreach, like they're fighting an uphill battle because a lot of the folks within the hunting community in California, they didn't have this information leading up to the ban. So all they know is the government stepped in and they banned this type of ammunition that I've been using and my father's been using, my grandfather's been using. This is a part of our heritage and it's connected to all these gun rights issues and it's been adopted by the NRA and every other gun rights organization as, you know, first they come to take our ammunition, then they come to take our guns. The attitudes that hunters have in California when you go out in the field and you talk to them about this issue is very, very different than the attitudes that hunters in Arizona have because they never passed a ban and the Fish and Game Agency just said, here are two free boxes of ammunition. Try it. See what you think. And it's really high quality ammunition. So these hunters try it and they're like, this is great. I can't believe our Fish and Game Agency gave us free ammo. This is fantastic. Like, And we're helping scavengers through the process. Like, fantastic. So, you know, this was part of my job when I worked as a condor biologist was, you know, when it was hunting season, we would sort of switch gears. I mean, we would still be sort of tracking the condor but we would also be spending time going from hunting camp to hunting camp and just talking to hunters about this issue and talking to them about condors and everything that we were doing and why it was connected to how it was connected to the lead ammunition issue. I never had a negative response from a hunter. And almost every hunting camp that I would go into, the response would be, you know, when I go to introduce myself and talk about what we're doing, I'm like, oh, you're one of the condor guys. We're using the free non-lead ammunition. This stuff is great. Like 90% of the, the responses, that was what it was. And then that remaining 10% would be people who were like, oh yeah, you know, I saw that coupon for the free ammo, but I didn't have a chance to get into the store to redeem it. But once you talk to them a little bit about the issue and explain the importance of, you know, why it's important to use non-lead every single time, like, oh yeah, okay, well next time I'm totally going to use it and I'll bag up my gut pile after I process it so the condors won't get to it. Yeah, it's interesting because basically what you're pointing out is the differences between positive and negative reinforcement and how much more effective positive reinforcement is versus negative reinforcement, which is we will punish you for an action instead of giving you a reason to want to participate in a change. So you created Scavenger Hunt. You said 2010 is when it was released. Is that what you had said? 2012. 2012. Okay, so it's been five years at this point. You now have Wild Lens, which is your nonprofit filmmaking organization. Did that exist at the time or is that something that came after Scavenger Hunt? It kind of came partway through the process. Midway through producing the film, myself and the sort of small team that I had put together realized that we're not going to finish this. You know, up until that point, we'd all just been volunteering our time and we realized this project will never end unless we can raise some money. (laughs) And I mean, initially, like that was what Wildlands was, was like it was a nonprofit we started. We didn't have any other projects or programs right off the bat. We sort of used it to like do some fundraising and get the money we needed to finish that film. And once we finished Scavenger Hunt and we got it out there, we started to think about like, okay, well, where could we go with this organization? And how could we sort 
sort of take this mission that was developed and use some of the stuff that we learned through producing this one long film and broaden that to encompass a much wider variety of conservation issues. You know, that mission is continually evolving. The first sort of component that came out of that was our short video series, Eyes on Conservation. And then we eventually started producing a, an audio podcast series that we paired with that. So now Eyes on Conservation is, you know, sort of an audio interview series, not all that different than, than this podcast series that you guys produce. And then also a short video series, all focused on a variety of different conservation issues with that theme being sort of finding that target group and working within communities to come up with, you know, big picture solutions to conservation issues. One thing that I find really interesting, because you do still work as a biologist, correct? To a certain extent. It's actually been several years since I worked a legitimate <laughs> biology job. The reason I ask is being a filmmaker is already so time consuming in and of itself. And I'm sure yeah. being a biologist is time consuming yeah. in and of itself. So to do both simultaneously would seem very difficult. It is. And over the years, you know, I've been spending more and more time doing not just the filmmaking, but just sort of generally media production work. And yeah, for the last, I'd say two years, it's been about two years since I worked a field biology job. But we do maintain that, right? I mean, our organization is set up as a nonprofit. You know, our board is sort of composed of people that come from both worlds, both the world of biology and conservation and also filmmaking and storytelling. So we do like to think that we sort of maintain connections to, to both of those worlds and input from both worlds. And I'm sure your scientific background helps immensely when you're trying to chase some of these topics. I'm sure you, you bring a certain amount of knowledge that otherwise you wouldn't know what to look into, what to pursue, or how to analyze a certain situation. So if you would tell us about some of the ongoing projects Wildlands has right now and maybe any previous completed projects. You know, we have these short films that we produce that we release on our website, on our Eyes on Conservation platform, and there's always a number of those projects sort of in the works. But then we also have these larger film projects that are more passion projects. After we finished Scavenger Hunt, we produced a half-hour documentary called Bluebird Man, which is sort of like a, a feel-good conservation story. It's about this 95-year-old citizen scientist who has been monitoring and maintaining over 300 nest boxes for bluebirds here in central Idaho for the past four years. And so it's sort of this story about this one individual that has been able to have a measurable impact on the outcome of a species. And we sort of tell his life story and you know what this large-scale citizen science project that he undertook, like what impact that's had on his life and what impact that's had on the local environment here. I like that idea because I think often the argument is all these problems are bigger than me. What can one person do? So to take one person and then show examples of how that individual is impacted, I think that can maybe have a larger impact on people than just showing them the difficulties that they need to face. So I think that was an intelligent decision on your part, but I'll let you continue. It was certainly a reaction to that first film I produced, which is this very sort of tricky conservation issue with a lot of like very frustrating sort of political issues that you have to deal with inherent to the issue and a lot of sort of fighting and a lot of polarization and just you know very difficult to sort of wrap your mind like I said it's an issue that initially seems simple but when you really delve into it like the complexities of it and trying to find a tangible solution and a way forward can be very difficult and frustrating and so we absolutely were looking at potential stories for our next you know substantial film project we wanted to tell a conservation success story. And I think you're right. I mean, it's very important to talk about those instances in which one individual has truly been able to make a positive impact because that's 
that's inspiring for people. So yeah, absolutely. So we finished that film in 2014 and almost immediately jumped into our next longer film project, which is still in production now. And that's a documentary about the world's most endangered marine mammal called the Vaquita. So we've now been working on this film for two and a half years. And we actually did release a half hour version of the film last year that's been screening around at some festivals and we've been using to raise awareness and also to do like direct outreach and advocacy campaigns like in the region in Mexico that is most directly impacted by this issue. And we're currently still shooting for a a feature length version of that film. So something I'd love to hear about, because as you may know or may not, I am also a filmmaker and a lot of the projects we make are more commercial style projects and promotional projects. And those, it can be difficult enough to raise funds when you're helping someone create a project that helps their company generate funds. You specifically are working with conservation issues and as a nonprofit. So how do you go about raising funds for these projects? Because it's a lot harder to convince people to give you money if that money isn't going to turn into more money for them. Yes, absolutely. And you (laughs) dove in right into like the heart of the nonprofit world, right? Mm. Because it is, it's all about money and, and finding ways to leverage that and create the opportunity to go out and do this kind of work that we do. So, I mean, we have a variety of approaches. We ran successful Kickstarter campaigns for our last two films. And that's where the seed money came from for both our film Bluebird Man and this project about the Vaquita. So that's definitely like one very important aspect of it. And crowdsource campaigns are, you know, it's a lot of work to put in upfront, but there's a lot of benefits that go beyond just the money that is raised. We really like that approach of like launching a project with a huge push, a big sort of outreach and media push because it builds an audience for the content right at the beginning. We gather just enough footage to cut together a nice little sort of teaser for the project. And then we just spend an entire month doing nothing but reaching out to every single person we know. And, you know, the idea obviously is to raise that seed money, but also to build an audience for the project that's going to follow progress of it moving forward. So we've done that with each of these last two films that we produced. We also do a fair amount of client work. The short films that we produce for our Eyes on Conservation series, a lot of those are projects that we're working directly with another conservation-oriented nonprofit organization or with university professors and researchers that are engaged in interesting conservation projects and are able to write into their grants funds for a video project. There is some client work that's embedded within that and then we're lucky enough to have several fairly substantial large donors that we can turn to on occasion and sort of make a hard pitch or like this project is extremely important like we need X amount of money to get to this next sort of crucial point in the project and then partnerships and so this Vikita film that we're working on right now our approach with this film was you know we spent about a year and a half shooting we put together this half hour film with all the content we had captured up until that point the goals of that half hour film were twofold I mean one most importantly was to use it for immediate education and outreach and sort of the nature of this issue with the vaquita is this is a species that you know we're watching it decline and get closer and closer towards extinction over the course of the past two years Um, the population has gone from an estimate of about 100 individuals to now an estimate of about 15 individuals since we started shooting so I mean there was this like immediate you know need for content to do education and outreach 
because it's like this species is disappearing in front of our eyes, right? We did a whole series of sort of community engagement screenings, you know, within these small communities in the upper Gulf of California in Mexico, which is where the species of porpoise, the vaquita, lives. Then we also did a series of diplomatic screenings in Hong Kong and other parts of China because there's this connection between Mexico and China with this issue because the cause of the vaquita's decline is the market in China for the swim bladder of a fish called the tatuaba. So the swim bladder of the tatuaba sells for tens of thousands of dollars in China, and the nets that are used to catch tatuaba illegally in Mexico are also very effective at trapping and entangling and killing vaquita. So it is this illegal market for the swim bladder of the tatuaba that is indirectly driving the extinction of the vaquita in Mexico. These we saw as like sort of the two crucial audiences to reach, you know, the consumers of this product in China and Hong Kong and the folks within the community who are engaged in this illegal fishing activity in Mexico. So that was our initial goal, right? But then of course, the secondary goal with this half hour film was to use it to raise funds for a potential feature length film, an expansion of the story itself. And that came to fruition earlier this year. We were essentially able to reach out to a number of organizations and came to essentially a co-production agreement. So this film has now become a collaboration between four different production companies, which has really elevated it to a level that will dramatically increase the sort of general audience exposure that this story will get, which is also very important, right? Because, you know, this issue, very similar to the California condor issue, in one sense, it's very narrow in focus. We're talking about this one species that is only found within this very small area on the planet. But in a lot of ways, the lessons that are being learned through these attempts to save this species from extinction are absolutely relevant to many, many other species and are absolutely relevant to this extinction crisis that we are going through on this planet. It's important to have very targeted audience, but then also producing content that is accessible and engaging for a general audience to watch. People who've never even heard of this this unusual little marine mammal that is found only in the upper Gulf of California. Yeah, I would imagine that some of the solutions for solving this problem would also be applicable to other similar situations with other marine animals. And so maybe it could help more than just the vaquita. Do you have a projected release date? yet. Are you unsure about that at this time? Yeah, it's still definitely not 100% certain, but we are aiming to release this Vaquita documentary by the end of 2018. So in about a year, we're hoping it will be released. At least we'll be starting to screen it on the festival circuit. With traditional narrative filmmaking, right? You write a script, you set aside your shoot days, you get your crew reserved, you do everything within those days, and then you go straight into post, and you try to create something close to what your script asks for. With documentary, you can only write so much ahead of time, and you can only plan mm-hmm. so much ahead of time. A lot of it is reacting to events as they occur that maybe are foreseen and maybe are unforeseen. So tell us a little bit about that, because it's it's a little harder to make sure you have people available to shoot things when you're not exactly sure when something's going to happen that needs to be shot. Yes, that's absolutely true. You know, I've written numerous treatments and story outlines for this project we're working on now about the vaquita. The story has evolved 
numerous times. I mean, yes, this is the case for any documentary, right? But I think specifically for this story and for this film, it's been particularly difficult because communication has been an issue. I guess I'll put it that way, right? Certain characters that we're following don't communicate with us unless we're physically there in person with them. And so we've had to, you know, go down on numerous shoots you know, not knowing if our characters are even going to be available. And if they are going to be available, like not knowing what they're going to be doing, like, oh, it'd be great if we could capture this character doing X, but we're not going to know if that might happen until we're down there. And obviously you have to invest all this time and money into getting down there. And then you get down there and things end up inevitably playing out in a very different way than what you imagined. So the ability to adapt to those situations, but also to just immediately try to envision like, okay, well, is this relevant to the story or this very different thing is happening? Like, is that relevant? Can we tie that in? Like, is it worth shooting this? I mean, we're constantly, you know, asking all those questions of ourselves. On every documentary shoot, you're always doing that, right? But I think it's particularly, this film absolutely has been our greatest challenge for sure. Both sort of the complexities inherent in the story, also because of the, you know, difficulties with communication. A lot of these people speak only Spanish, so there's like, there's a language barrier sometimes. Yeah, just generally the communication has is, is been a struggle. <laughs> so what is on the horizon for Wild Lens after Vaquita, or is that not even on your mind yet? Are you just trying to finish this one picture before you start to look at what maybe is the next thing you do? We are just now sort of starting to think about what might come after this Vaquita project is completed. At this point, there's a thousand ideas out there, and you know we're sort of in that stage where we're throwing a lot of ideas out there, and we haven't really started the process of like narrowing down and figuring out like what that next big story will be for us. You know, one of the the things that's sort of central to like our approach with Wildlands is, you know, we try to stay engaged in a whole variety of different conservation issues that are going on and we can jump into a conservation issue and produce you know, a very short video piece about this issue that's like, you know, just a couple minutes long or five minutes long and release that on our Eyes on Conservation platform and use that to sort of decide of like, okay, is this an issue that's worth expanding? You know, is there something more than just a five minute video here? There's always a lot of options, right? Lots of different issues connected to wildlife and, and conservation always going on. So yeah, I mean, at this point, I, I couldn't really give you anything specific. Um, we definitely are interested in, in more than just filmmaking as a medium, though, I'll say. You know, we've been producing this podcast series called Eyes on Conservation for the past two years now. It's an interview series, you know, very similar to this show. Um, we interview a variety of folks involved in the field of conservation, people who approach it from a, a diverse array of perspectives, you know, so like not just biologists, but artists, politicians, and I mean, anybody who has any kind of connection in their work to conservation issues. And we kind of like to explore it from a variety of different perspectives. But that's one of the things that is is almost certainly on the horizon for us is expanding the scope of what we offer in the that audio only format. So we're looking into uh, launching a new podcast series, you know, sort of like a radio documentary style series that would be uh, more heavily produced and organized into seasons, Just sort of using that as a way to go a little bit more in depth into some of these conservation issues. You know, for example, like the Vaquita issue. I mean, there's a lot of content and a lot of information that will be left out of this feature length documentary because there's only, you know, there's only so much you can cover within that limited 
time span. Right. Um, no one wants to see a 20-hour documentary. Exactly. <laughs> but a lot of people do want to listen to, you know, 20 hours of podcast content. Right. And so that will provide us the opportunity to uh, go a little bit more in-depth into that issue, but to use a lot of the same content that has been captured. Yeah, exploring other mediums is definitely a part of that. The thing about Wildlands that is, I guess, probably different than like most other, you know, sort of production companies is, you know, we think of ourselves as conservationists first. We're trying to think about like, what's the best way to get a message across that will have the greatest impact on the outcome of an issue. And, and it's important for us to periodically like take a big step back, look at the big picture and think about like, you know, where can we have the greatest impact with our storytelling? Tell us a few of the particulars about the podcast, like how many episodes there are, how people can listen to it, how often it is released. Yeah, you bet. So the Eyes on Conservation podcast is a weekly interview series. So we release new episodes every Wednesday. I, I think sort of the overarching goal, my overarching goal with the show is to show people that conservation is not a niche issue, that it's connected to every aspect of your of your lives, right? And I mean, it's the same with a lot of the content you guys are producing. Like we are, humans are just another animal living in this, in this landscape, right? right? Like we are, we are functioning members of every ecosystem that we inhabit. The idea is by, you know, not just interviewing scientists and researchers, like obviously that is a foundation of what we do on our podcast. Um, Cause that's where a lot of our background comes from in that world of science. But by also, you know, talking to folks who come from a wide diversity of different professions, but who are engaged in a conservation issue from a very different perspective, we want to show people like no matter what you do, no matter, you know, what what your passion is, conservation is involved or should be. It's funny. It seems like so much of what we have to do now in humanity and kind of what everyone's struggling to make happen is shifting the concept of man as the master of his domain mm -hmm. and recognizing that we are, are an active participant and member of an ecosystem instead of the masters reigning above it, able to just extract whatever we want and exploit whatever we want with no repercussions. That's kind of probably part of your driving mission statement at Wildlands is just getting that across absolutely. to the public. Absolutely. I mean, that is a central message that we come back to over and over again with, with all the content we produce, whether it's our podcast or, you know, some of the video content we produce. It's central, right? And and I mean, I do think that, that what comes along with that shift in perspective is a dramatically different way of viewing the world. If we could convince sort of a critical mass of people to like share that perspective, that very basic perspective of we are active participants in every ecosystem that we inhabit. I don't know. I, I, I hope that that would lead to change and sort of movement on some of these big picture conservation issues that, that we face right now, like the extinction crisis, global climate change, stuff like that. I would imagine one of the trickiest parts too is educating people that being an active participant in something instead of a master over it is not you giving up something or losing something. It's you investing in everything that's going to come after you and for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can get there. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's different for everybody, right? Which is why we're trying to explore all this stuff from diversity of different perspectives. And, you know, so I just like what just popped into my head was actually the one of the things that I sort of brought to your attention when I reached out to you mm -hmm. um, about coming to join you as, as a guest on your podcast, which was this like one specific 
experience that I had while I was working as a, as a condor field biologist. Yeah, let's talk about uh, that because you mentioned how it changed the way you looked at things mm-hmm. permanently after it mm-hmm. happened. Absolutely. So, well, I mean, I'll say that, you know, when I, when I joined this, this crew of California condor field biologists working in Arizona and Utah, there was, there was absolutely this awareness that people go missing in the Grand Canyon every year. You know, something like a dozen people on average um, go missing. Hikers, people committing suicide, you know, for whatever reason. Like, the Grand Canyon is a very, very harsh environment. (laughs) And uh, not everybody prepares the way that they should before, you know, uh, climbing down into that vast canyon system. Despite the many, many signs in the canyon that say, (laughs) please do not hike down and try to hike back up during the day. Please bring water. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And I mean, there have been, you know, books written all about this. I mean, there's a, a, a very a fascinating and quite humorous book called Death in the Grand Canyon that sort of goes through the history of mishaps that people have had uh, in, in the Grand Canyon. Um, so there was absolutely this awareness of like, we're, you know, the, the species that we're working with is a scavenger. People go missing in the Grand Canyon. And like, of course, every once in a while, I'm sure that this happens, that, that condors end up feeding upon a human carcass. But this had never been documented before. Even though the awareness of this, it was sort of in the back of all of our minds, you know, it wasn't something that myself or anybody on the crew ever like expected to encounter. Until, you know, one day within the first year that I worked on that project, one of my coworkers was working at the South Rim of the Grand Canyon. So this is like the main sort of tourist hub of Grand Canyon National Park. He was following, you know, the little blips of the the radio transmitters that every single condor um, has attached to their wing to track the animals. And he had a, a you know, a, a decent sized group of birds below the canyon rim, all congregated together, which, you know, to us indicates that they're probably feeding on a carcass. You know, when you have a group of birds feeding on a carcass, especially when it's close to a population center, like the South Rim of the Grand Canyon, where it's a lot of people, like, absolutely, that's top priorities to investigate that and see what's going on. And so he started walking along the rim to try to get a visual on this group of birds and to see what was going on. And the way he tells the story, he was expecting to see a bighorn sheep or an elk that had maybe fallen off the rim of the canyon. But what he saw when he got to a perspective um, where he could see the animals was he immediately saw that they were feeding on a human body. As you might imagine, I mean, you know, his his first reaction was to call Park Service law enforcement. And it turned out there was, you know, at that time, a missing person. They came in and, you know, essentially, you know, Park Service law enforcement took over and, and you know, they have procedures for removing those those bodies and dealing with that situation, obviously. And, and you know, at that point, he, he took a step back. And I think he just kind of stayed in the area to monitor and make sure that that the condors that were in the area were safe as they brought in helicopters, et cetera. But what that did was that made Grand Canyon Park Service law enforcement aware for the first time that, hey, there's this crew of condor biologists and they're following these scavengers around and they have radio transmitters on every single animal. So when someone goes missing in the Grand Canyon and there's you know a likelihood that that person is dead, which after 48 hours have passed, it's something like a 99% chance that the person is no longer alive. These guys are a resource for us doing our, our work and recovering missing people in the Grand Canyon. And so after that incident, every single time someone would go missing in the park, we would get a call, our field office. And they give us all the information, you know, GPS coordinates of where the person was last seen, um, how much time had passed, etc. They just asked us 
to, you know, hey, if this is in an area that you don't normally check for your, you know, the radio signals from the birds, like, you know, just do a check there like once or twice a day and just see if there's any behavior that might indicate that these animals have found a carcass or are feeding on something. And so that became a part of our job, especially if you were the person that was tasked with working within the park in a given period of time, it became normal to get a phone call from you know either our boss or directly from someone from law enforcement in the park giving you all this uh, information on a missing person case and so this kind of became the norm and you know again like once something becomes the norm it just you know it, it becomes like a part of your routine and you don't really think twice about it right until something happens and so I was working at the South Rim of the Grand Canyon one day. The first sort of indicator that, that something was up actually came, you know, before I had any indication that there were condors potentially um, feeding on a human, human body. Um, I mean, I got, I got the call from Park Service law enforcement, which was totally normal for me. And like, okay, yeah, like I'll, I'll go and do some signal checks, you know, near these GPS coordinates and let you know if anything comes of it. But then what happened was I was, I was doing this work and, and doing this work at the South of the Grand Canyon. I mean, you know, you're dressed in like sort of a uniform and you're carrying this big Yagi antenna, so this big device that picks up the radio signals from the telemetry devices on the condors, and you're swinging this thing around because you have to go through and you have to check every single signal for every single bird in the population. So you're running through 80 or so different um, frequencies to see the directionality of where each individual bird is located if they're in the canyon. And so it's very obvious, like, hey, what's this guy doing with this big giant piece of equipment and it's normal to get approached by tourists being like hey what are you doing or hey you must be like looking for condors you know and so you have this whole speech that you know you're like prepared to give that you say a thousand times a day when you're working in that area and so I got approached by this group of people and they you know I was sort of expecting you know to to give this this standard speech that I give to everybody but instead of sort of asking me like, oh, hey, what are you doing? Or what's up with the antenna? Or are there any condors around? What they said to me was, we'd like to shake your hand because you're helping us find our father. And so the family had been told by Park Service law enforcement that you know their father was this missing person whose information I had been given on the phone call earlier that day. And whoever was dealing with the family from Park Service law enforcement had provided them the information that like, hey, like one of the things that we're doing to help find your loved one is like there's this team of condor biologists here and they're they're actually helping, which to me was quite shocking at the moment that like that information would have been conveyed to the family because if I'm involved, that means their father's dead. Right. You think they'd want to hold out hope. Yeah. And, and I was sort of put in this very tricky situation where I was trying to sort of explain like what I was doing without sort of like you know, just telling them up front, like, yeah, if I see anything, that means that your father is dead. Maybe it helps find his body, but like, if the condors are taking interest, there's no chance. Yeah, I'm sure you were very aware of how you chose your words in that moment. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, so, so anyways, I mean, that, that first interaction occurred. This family had, had, had come to the park and I mean, obviously like they're not going anywhere because I mean, this, you know, this is their father and, you know, um, so, um, and, you know, so I started going out to this, this separate lookout point a couple times a day and, um, you know, checking 
to see if there was any condor activity in this area where um, this this individual had been last seen. And I ended up having numerous additional interactions with the family because they knew where he had been last seen as well. And so we'd run into each other and had a number of conversations. And I mean, really amazing people. And like, they, they were very curious about the whole program and, and everything that was going on. But again, I mean, it certainly like I was being very cautious about like the language I used and what I said because I didn't, you know, I felt like it wasn't my role to say like, oh yeah, I got some condors like circling in this area. So, you know, that means like the implication there is that your, you know, your loved one is most likely dead. Right. So I was being very cautious about that, but it was just, it was just, it, it added this very bizarre element to the whole experience that I was constantly interacting with the family throughout the entire experience. But I did eventually, you know, a couple of days later, I started to pick up um, radio signals from three condors in this area, you know, right where this person's last been seen, they were circling in there, and then they went down to roost at the end of the day in this spot, which is not a, you know, typical roost location, which to me indicates that they, they found food. And because of the proximity to where this person had last been seen, like, this was worthy of a call to Park Service law enforcement. So I called them up, and they, they actually had a secondary piece of evidence that connected the, the, the individual to this location where I had had these signals with the condors. Like somebody had seen a backpack or something, right? And so they're like, we have two pieces of evidence. Like we're going down tomorrow morning, first thing. And we'd, we'd like for you to come with us because I have the radio telemetry equipment and I can track the condors um, with, with some precision. And so the next morning we went down there, you know, they found this backpack, you know, and I'm just following these little blips of the um, telemetry devices on these three condors. And we followed them right to this guy's body. It, it, it happened relatively quickly. And the body was not, was not very far from the trail. And it was on this very steep, very precarious talus slope. I mean, the, uh, it, the, the most shocking thing to me was that we found the body, one of the family members minutes after we found the body you know we went off trail saw the body and then came back to the trail to kind of regroup with these law enforcement officers and to discuss like okay what are the next steps now that we've located the body and immediately the the son of this person came hiking down the trail behind us like minutes after we found the body and 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 and, you know one the the bizarre thing was this you know, the son, he, he didn't know any of these park service folks that I was with, you know, he knew me cause I'd been interacting with him. And so like, I was the familiar face. And so his first thing to say is like, Oh, Hey Matt, like, how's it going? Like, have you guys found anything yet? And I'm just like, Oh my God, like I can't, you know, and I didn't, I think I just froze and didn't say anything, you know, and luckily one of the, you know, one of the park service officers totally interjected and was like, look, like, let's, let's go hike up the trail a little bit. And like, let's meet up with the rest of your family and like sit down and have a conversation. Which immediately told him, yes, we have found yeah. your father. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, he, he dealt with that and we kind of waited around for a little bit and he came back and. Um, after informing the family. And then we started this process of like discussing how to remove the body. And there were four of us, you know, so it was myself and these four Park Service law enforcement officers. And, you know, at this point they kind of turned to me and they're like, so you don't have to help us. <laughs> and we totally understand if you don't feel comfortable helping us. Like, but we could really use your help. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it would feel so weird to just leave then. It would right, feel like unfinished business. Totally, and and it and it would have felt like I was putting you know these 
these three people in 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 a very difficult spot you know right. um because it was clear that they they needed my help to successfully remove this body so i did i mean i i assisted in you know essentially like um packaging the body like getting it wrapped up in this body bag and then they brought the helicopter in and you know connected it up and and, and removed the body had you done anything like that with a human no. body before no because I know you've come, you would come across animals being devoured, you know, other animals that aren't human being devoured by the condors previously to that. But it's got to be a very different story when it's a creature that looks like you, smells like you, could be you. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting. There were, there were differences that I observed in the way I reacted and the way some of these other, other folks um, from Park Service law enforcement reacted. And, and I think the key difference was I was very used to, at that point, animal carcasses. You know, like right. every single day I'm tracking condors to mm -hmm. the carcasses of animals in various stages of decay. And so the thing that, you know, didn't have an impact on me at all, but did for some of these law enforcement officials was the smell. To me, the smell was the same. And it indicated to me of like, this is just another animal. You know, this is just another animal carcass. It smells no different whatsoever. The key difference for me was the fact that was seeing this man's face. And that's what gave it like the human element to me. And it was really hard. I found myself kind of looking away and like just, you know, like the smell almost was, I mean, it not comforting, but... <laughs> It's a pretty um, terrible smell. The smell's terrible, right? <laughs> yeah. But like there was this familiarity, you know, yeah, yeah. and it sort of brought me to this place of like, this is just another animal. But, you know, in talking to some of the other, you know, these these three other individuals I was I was I was with, like it was clear that the smell was really what bothered them the most, which I just thought was interesting, you know, mm -hmm. and like something that's that's quite different like based on where I was coming from in my experience versus their experience. But no, I mean, I had never, I mean, I dealt with a lot of, um, a lot of, lots and lots of dead animals, right? But um, that was, that was the first, you know, human body I'd ever seen. Did you find it difficult to switch over into a mode where you could work with that without thinking about it as a human? Or did, what, did it surprisingly click over quickly and it was just like dealing with any other animal? It was definitely different, right? I mean, at no point was it like, oh, this is just another animal, right? Uh -huh. I mean, um, but you know, it, it helped that, that I wasn't, it, you know, this wasn't my operation, right? I mean, I was sort of being told what to do and right. that definitely made it easier um, as I was just sort of playing this one specific role and that, that definitely helped. And, and also, you know, yeah. And, and I mean, also I'll come back to the smell, like just every once in a while, like think, you know, smelling that and be like, just another animal, you know, the most difficult aspect for me in all of this had nothing to do with the removal of the body. It was interacting with the family oh yeah of course climbing up to the top and then you know there was another interaction with the family i mean they they already knew the news and everything but like having to just talk to them you know after seeing what i saw and yeah i mean was uh, that was you know just trying to converse with them in a way that was like respectful and understanding you know like what this what this meant for them and and you know putting myself in their shoes and trying to envision like how how crazy that would be if that was like, you know, someone that, you know, someone I knew or, or, you know, a member of my family. That was definitely the most difficult aspect of it. Yeah, I'm sure for them there was this weird sense of relief that they finally had an answer. Then the outcome was absolutely not what they wanted it to be. So trying to parse those two simultaneously, mm -hmm. I'm sure was very difficult. Yeah, yeah. 
But, you know, I, I do think it was definitely a moment for, for me where this connection that we were talking about, you know, and this recognition of humans as just functioning members of an ecosystem was very readily apparent, you know. And, I mean, it's certainly that was a mindset that I had before any of this happened because of my background. But this put it in a very fresh and different perspective. Right, really know? strong reinforcement. Yeah, Exactly. For this family, like, I, I mean, I, I really don't know this for certain, right? But I mean, I really felt like they were good people and they were honestly and legitimately curious about what I was doing. And it wasn't like, that didn't erode away after the body was found and the awareness was there that condors had fed upon that body, right? Um, like that curiosity was still there. They actually sent me this this thank you note, which I've saved because it's just the you know such an unusual gesture given the the, the circumstance that like this right. family would think to take the time to write just this very simple thank you note thanking me for the role I played in in recovering you know the body of their loved one. Th- that to me indicates that this experience led to some deeper understanding within that context. You know what I mean? Like whether or not they're thinking of it specifically in the same way that we're discussing it of humans as functioning members of ecosystems, like that was there on some level. And they were able to sort of take some piece of that away from this experience, despite how obviously like traumatic it must have been. That was really definitely like a very, I mean, moving for me aspect of that to like receive this, this thank you card and be like, holy shit, like, wow, you know? Then the other, you know, like on a, on a less sort of like emotional note, like the other really interesting takeaway was what I got out of this, this wrap up meeting that was held um, after, you know, the body was recovered and everything was complete. I mean, I guess it's, this is sort of standard practice when there's a missing persons case, I'm sure not just within the park service, but, but, you know, wherever, um, all the different agencies and individuals that, that were involved in the recovery effort all came together and just had a little powwow. And what we did was we went around in a circle and there may be like 15 or 20 individuals, myself being one, they invited me to, to sit in on participate in this meeting. And everybody just went around in a circle and, you know, we were asked to, you know, sort of say one thing that we thought went well about the operation and one thing that, you know, we thought could be improved upon moving forward. And I don't even remember what I said, to be honest. You know, I, the response that this one particular law enforcement officer gave, like, really struck me. And it instigated this very interesting conversation that happened amongst all the folks that were there. And, you know, essentially his comment was something along the lines of like, okay, well, we know that after 48 hours have elapsed from the point at which last contact was seen with a missing person, there's essentially like a 99% chance that that person is dead statistically. Despite that, what he said is despite that, we expend a huge amount of effort, you know, time and hours searching for that individual as if they were alive, right? So they're doing these like helicopter flights and they're doing stuff that's that's very risky. You know, these they, they talked a lot about these helicopter flights they do, like searching for individuals. It's a very risky thing to do these low flights down in the canyon. This is what he was saying is like, we're putting additional lives at risk searching for somebody who is almost certainly dead already. And like, why would we do that when we have uh, species, condors, that are much more attuned to finding and locating dead animals in this landscape? 
And we could just, essentially what he's saying is we could just wait for the condors to find these bodies and then let the condor biologists, and he's pointing to me, track the condors to the bodies. And I'm just like, holy shit, like, is this going to become like our, you know, are we like, you know, condor biologists, like slash search and rescue crew? Like, is this just going to become like, and I mean, as I said, initially, like it already had become a part of like, you know, our job and what we do. But, you know, he was essentially proposing like, let's hand off a huge amount of the responsibility of finding missing people just to the condor biologists, you know. (laughs) And it, of course, turned into this like discussion about like, okay, well, when dealing with the family, like it's not acceptable to give up to accept to give up yeah. right yeah exactly there's still um, the one percent chance that that mm-hmm. person might be alive and how terrible would they feel to find out that person survived 72 hours and maybe could have been rescued exactly exactly um, and that's essentially what it boiled down to but it was just a very fascinating discussion that i you know i mean i wasn't even really a part of it it just was instigated and i'm kind of sitting there l- listening to these folks debate whether or not they should like exclusively use condors right. um, to find <laughs> to find people who go missing which is very strange did this happen prior or during scavenger hunt production it happened prior so i did start shooting for the film while i was still working as a as a biologist but this was i think before i really started shooting so so this happened shifts your perspective a little bit and then you start making documentaries (laughs) maybe they're linked in some fashion maybe they're not (laughs) there's certainly some connection there you know i mean it's yeah and and it certainly wasn't conscious and there wasn't a conscious connection there but i'm sure you know it was like probably one of many triggers that led to like me diving into the, the film production force if you look back you'll find all the little pieces that the ozone documentary when you're in mm, kindergarten yep right they just all start to come together and and put you on this path towards uh, trying to help humanity and animals yes. through yeah. filmmaking so i think we should go ahead and wrap up the show but before we do that i'd love for you to share where people can go to find out more about Wild Lens, where they can go to subscribe to the podcast, and also if you have a means for people to get involved, how they could go about doing that as well. Folks can check out our website for Wild Lens, the, our nonprofit media production company. Um, it's wildlensinc.org. Folks can um, check out our podcast and uh, subscribe to the podcast. You can find that link on our website, wildlensinc.org. You can also you know, search for Eyes on Conservation um, in the iTunes store or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. How could they go about seeing Scavenger Hunt and other films that you guys have put together? So all those links are available on the the, the Wildlands website, um, wildlandsinc.org. To watch Scavenger Hunt, you can you know get a direct link to, to check that film out at scavengerhuntfilm.com. And then what I like to do here at the end of this show is leave the audience with some final thought or some final story that you have in stores or anything we haven't talked about or anything you'd just like to leave the audience with, a little piece of information for them to chew on. It's a difficult sort of time to be involved in conservation because as we started off talking about right at the very beginning, like there is you know, this, this sense of direness, um, that looms over, it looms over your head if you're working in, in, I think anywhere within the space of, of conservation. But I think the, the other side of that coin is that we're living at this very unique moment in history. We are at this point in time where like, we're right at the very beginning of, you know, what people are referring to as, as the sixth, uh, mass extinction event. And we're at a moment where like, it's still possible 
to affect the outcome of that. So it's like on one hand, you know, it's 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 easy to get like weighed down and bogged down by, you know, the immensity of and the scale of the the issues that we're trying to to deal with and address. But, you know, the other side of that is we are at this very unique and critical moment in history where it's still possible to affect the outcome on a very large scale. I think that's a pretty good thought to leave people to ponder. <laughs> I want to say thanks for taking the time to talk to me from what appears to be sunny Boise, Idaho. Yeah. Uh, yeah, appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. Matt has shared an unfortunate update with us here at the show, and here to share that in his own words is, of course, Erica. I just returned from the upper Gulf of California in Mexico, where I was shooting the monumental effort to capture the last vaquitas left in the wild to save them from imminent extinction. This effort unfortunately failed. Of the two animals that were captured, one was released due to high levels of stress, and the other one died while in captivity. This means that the vaquita, which is the smallest species of cetacean in the world, will almost certainly go extinct within the next year or so. Our film about this topic will be released by the end of 2018. So yes, you can look forward to seeing their vaquita documentary later next year. But unfortunately, you may not be able to find the vaquita on the earth much longer. Hopefully someone comes up with a solution or there is a miracle hiding somewhere in the oceans that no one is aware of yet. And now is that time where you head to our website, gogetoutside.com slash podcast, episode 59 with Matt Podolsky, where you will find photographs of him in action, photographs of California condors, and even a shot of a vaquita. And links to all of the things we talked about in today's show, including films he has worked on and his podcast. And perhaps our conversation today has inspired you to take action in some way, or at the very least, share some of their previous work with people who it can impact. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at this show, you may do that a number of ways. You can email us, go at butcherbirdstudios.com, or you can give us a call, 818-925-0106. And of course, as always, I will beg you to do your SRRS. Subscribe to the show, rate the show, review it, and share it with someone who will enjoy it. The Go Get Outside podcast is produced and recorded by me, your host, Jason Milligan. This episode was edited by Griffin Davis and me, and brought to you by Butcherbird Studios. Next time on the show, Amanda Kraft, wildlife volunteer, equestrian, dive master, climber, canyoneer, stunt repeller, paraglider, and all-around rad person. Come back December 16th for discussions of blood sickles and the rescuers down under. See you then. <laughs>